I'd like to begin today by describing for you four people. And as I describe these four people, I want you to consider what you would say to them if you had them all in one room and you could talk to all four of them. You know what? I forgot to pray. I'd like to do that before we start, so I apologize. <laughs> Lord, thank you for this moment. I pray that you would give me wisdom as I speak. pray that you would strengthen me. And Lord, may we all hear what your word has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, four people. <laughs> uh, and consider, how, what would you give them for counsel? So first of all, we have, oh, by the way, any relation to people is strictly coincidental, okay? Sheila struggles with how God views her. She wrestles with doubt. She constantly wonders. Maybe we just switch to the pulpit here, guys. I don't know what's going on with that, sorry. She constantly wonders if she's really a Christian at all. Henry uses his body however he wants and regularly looks up inappropriate content on his phone. In general, he lives for pleasure. And then you've got Eileen. Eileen is not very involved with her church, but when she does show up, it usually ends up with her putting someone else down and lifting herself up. She doesn't realize it, but at the end of the day, she has made church all about her. And then you've got Charles. Charles is an older man. He's always been the strong macho type. But now as he begins to near the end, he finds himself incredibly fearful of death. It's four very different situations, right? You've got guilt, hedonism, living for pleasure, extreme selfishness and individualism and fear of the future. Ask yourself, what would I tell each of these people if I had them in a room? Just ask yourself that. But then let me make it a little bit harder. What would you say if you could only say two words to all four of them? You just get two words. This is your chance to speak to them. What would you say? There's probably a lot of different things you could say that would be helpful, although two words is obviously pretty limiting. But I think that there are two words that would effectively address each one of those situations. These two words are some of the most neglected and yet foundational words to the Christian life. They show up literally dozens of times in our New Testaments. We say them and we sing them all the time, and yet we rarely stop to think about what they mean. Those two words are simply in Christ. In Christ. If Sheila, Henry, and the rest really grasped and applied what it means to be in Christ and everything that is bound up within those two words, I believe that it would transform their struggles. What we're referring to with these two words, in Christ, is a particular doctrine called union with Christ. As you can see, that's the name of our sermon here. It's the fact that Christians are intimately joined to Jesus. 
And so with this doctrine so neglected and yet so vital, I'd like us to survey it here this morning. And we're going to limit ourselves to the book of 1 Corinthians. So this is a little bit of a different kind of sermon. I'm not just going to take one text. I'd like to talk about this doctrine, but focus on it in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we'll be all throughout 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, here. So you say, well, why, why 1 Corinthians? That might feel a little random. Well, it, it's helpful, first of all, when you've got a topic that's this big, we're gonna, it, it can be helpful to just kind of narrow your focus a little bit. So there, there's that. Frankly, I'm taking a class on 1 Corinthians right now, so, that's part of, so my brain's just there. <laughs> so that's part of the reason why we're here. Um, but there's another reason. This isn't just totally random. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, you know that it was a mess. Toleration of immorality, bringing lawsuits against one another, disunity, factions in the church, denial of important doctrine. It was a mess. And so it's fascinating and highly significant that Paul, as he is writing to this messy church, brings up the doctrine of Christ, of union with Christ, over and over. <coughs> The words in Christ or in the Lord, something along those lines, appear over 20 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the, the, the doctrine of union with Christ, or, or the concept there, it shows up even more than that as well. So if union with Christ is something that messy, sinful people needed in Corinth, then I think it might be helpful for people like Sheila and Henry and the rest. And I think it just might be helpful for sinful, messy people like us as well. Now, as we explore this doctrine this morning, it's going to be very straightforward. I'm just going to ask three questions, Lord willing. First, what is union with Christ? Second, how does union with Christ happen? And third, why does it matter? Very basic. What is it? How does it happen? Why does it matter? So let's begin by looking at this first one. I, I recognize the words are a little small. I didn't test it in here until this morning, and then I was like, ooh, whoops, too late. So you'll just have to listen very carefully. <clears throat> but what is union with Christ? Well, let's, you should never use a word to define the word, but I'm going to do that a little bit. Um, think about what the word union means. Let's just start there before we get too far into this. We have every year a State of the Union address. We're called the United States. Why? Because there's distinct states that have been joined together, united. So union involves some sort of binding together. It's a joining of Christians to Christ. In fact, we saw that terminology in our scripture reading in Romans chapter 6. Verse 5 said, if, you, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In fact, and can it be, has a lot of overlap with this doctrine of union with Christ. Dr. Greg Stikes, in talking about union with Christ, said, when God unites us with his Son, he brings us into an intimate oneness with his Son, a oneness that is so complete and so eternal that what is true of Christ, the Son of God, is now true of us. That's a strong statement. Now, it's not to say that all of Jesus' attributes become ours. We don't become Jesus, literally. We don't all of a sudden have all the same abilities that he had. And yet, what I appreciate about this, not really definition, but this description, 
is that it helps us see that union is something profoundly intimate. And this something opens us up to the benefits that Christ himself secures. What's true of him, as he says, is true of us. Now to flesh this out a little bit more, I'd like us to think of two other words. And the first one of those words is relationship. And here's where we'll start to really get into 1 Corinthians now. Uh, first of all, we have 1 Corinthians 1.9. I'm going to put the verses on the screen today because we're just going through so many different passages today. Um, but you're certainly welcome to look them up and, and write them down and, and whatnot. But notice what these verses say. I, I wish we had time to dig into more of these verses, um, but I'm going to just, we're just focusing on what, what do we learn about union with Christ from these verses. So 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God calls us into fellowship with Christ, participation. This implies closeness, deep connection. Now when Paul says that we have been called into the fellowship of his Son, I don't think he means like talking to Jesus about the latest football game, as we often use the word fellowship. Paul is talking about a deep personal relationship with Jesus for those who are united to Christ. We have entered into a union with him. We call marriage a union for a reason, right? Two parties who once were not united have been joined together in a covenant relationship. And what's the result? They experience intimacy and close fellowship. This is part and parcel of their union. And so when we are united to Christ, we have fellowship with him. We are joined into that fellowship and have a relationship with him. But there's another key word that helps us capture what union with Christ is, and that's the word membership. I think this might even get a little bit more to, to Paul's point here. Now, when we think of membership, we, we often think of like a gym membership or a membership to BJ's or Costco. Well, when Paul uses the word membership, he's referring to the picture of a physical body that has different members, hands and feet and so on. And so we see this in 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 15. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, some of the verses I'm going to use today are very familiar, but I encourage you to think about them in terms of this idea of union, because I think sometimes we, we miss it. And we don't realize just how profound it is what we're saying. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or as he says in chapter 12, he says, Now you, Corinthian church, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I think we, we use that terminology all the time. Oh, this is the body of Christ. And we, but in, at least for me, I just say equals church. And I just think, okay, body of Christ equals church. But he says it's the body of Christ. Now, it's not saying, I mean, Christ's physical body is not here. But he is saying that every Christian is an actual part of Jesus. You are the body of Christ. Wow. That's, that's incredible. You know, we often think of Christ as the head of the body, right? And there are verses that say that. Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. But if you look carefully in 1 Corinthians 12, that's not how Paul uses the analogy there. He, he says, in, in fact, he, he talks about a head in a different sense. So in, in Paul's use of the analogy in chapter 12, he's actually saying that Christ is the entire body and every member 
is Christians make up the body of Christ. So it, it is true that Christ is our head. I'm not saying that's not the case. Those other verses teach that. But it's just that this imagery gets used in different ways in different passages. You can almost think of this like a, like a, like a skin graft or maybe like a kidney transplant. Like, like what, what happens when, when there's a kidney transplant? You have an organ that's outside the body and it's placed into the body, right? But when we say that, it's not like it's into the body like this tea is into the cup, right? It's, it's not like this tea, this tea has no union with the cup. It's just sitting in it. No, when there's a kidney transplant, it actually starts to get connected to the body, and we might even say it becomes part of the body. When we are united to Christ, we become a member or a part of Christ. Wow. So a natural question would come up here then. If union with Christ is intimate relationship, if it's vital membership in his body, then how does it happen? I mean, I, that, that sounds pretty great. That sounds hard to understand, and th that's true. <laughs> We're not going to fully unpack this today, and I certainly don't have a full, full understanding of this doctrine. But how does it happen? How do I get into Christ, to use that terminology? Well, quite simply, God unites, we believe. God unites and we believe. So we could, we could kind of summarize how this happens with the statement, the Father accomplishes union to the Son. So that's Christ, right? The Father accomplishes union to the Son through the Spirit. So where do we see this? Well, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians says, because of him... And if we looked back in verse 29, it would, we'd realize it was referring to God the Father. Because of him, God, you are, there's the phrase, in Christ Jesus. So often we use this phrase, in Christ, is just like a shorthand of like the Christian life or something like that. But there is so much more to it. You are actually in Christ Jesus. We'll look at the rest of this verse in a little while, and it just is it's mind-boggling. Because of him, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. So God is the one who has to do this. And then in chapter 12, we see, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now again, I, I, I'm not answering every question. I, you, I think a lot of you know me that I like to you know, make sure that I'm heading off these other questions. I'm not heading off every question that every verse poses here. I'm just trying to focus on union with Christ this morning. One spirit... Are we are baptized into one body. So the, the point I'm making here is that the Spirit is the one who has to place us into the body of Christ. So note then that being raised... Oh, and then, uh, yeah, so, the uni this, so this union with Christ then is something that the Father accomplishes through the Spirit. So God unites us, but that doesn't mean that we're just passive, right? No, we have a responsibility to believe. We see this in chapter 1. Verse 21, if it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, this is just talking about salvation in general, but here we see the important part that we as Christians, or we as people, need to believe if we want to have salvation. I'm going to break the rules, and I'm going to go outside of, uh, of, of Corinthians for a second. Colossians chapter 2 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith, there's that word belief, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
You can see that underlined portion there. The reason I wanted to go to this verse is because it connects union with Christ. We are raised how? Not just because God decided to raise us spiritually, but because when Jesus rose, we are united to him. We are raised with him, and that happens through faith. We are raised through faith. There's been a couple references to baptism, but remember that these baptism so pictures what happens in salvation, and so it continues to be used in these contexts. We are raised with him through faith. So being raised with Jesus happens through faith. So we need to simply reach out and trust that Christ's death was in our place. It was for our sins. We need to believe that Jesus, him, Jesus was raised from the dead. We must have faith in what God said. And so let's just pause and ask the question, have you been united to Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you a member of him? Well, it's not something you do yourself. You can't buy yourself into Christ. You can't work your way into Christ. You can't show up at church enough to be into Christ. No, God is the only one who can do this. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. In fact, it's so difficult that we must recognize that we can't get ourselves into Christ any more than a camel could get into the eye of a needle. But praise God that what's impossible with us is possible with him. And so we need to humbly admit our sin. We need to admit our utter inability to save ourselves. But then we trust. We believe. We reach out in faith and accept the gift of Christ. This is union. This is how union happens. God works. It's a mystery. He just, he unites us to Christ. And yet, we have responsibility to believe, to trust. So, that's, we've, we've been moving quickly, but now we're going to slow down a little bit. What is union with Christ? Membership, relationship, union. How does it happen? God works, we believe. But now, why does union with Christ matter? Why, you know, why, why talk about this for, you know, however many minutes this is going to end up being. You know, I saw a meme. I don't know if some of you saw this, but, uh, you know, with an extra hour this morning, that means that I can preach an extra hour, right? So uh, don't, well, we'll see if I'm serious or not. But maybe you're thinking, though, okay, you know, that's interesting in all, Josh, this stuff about union with Christ, but honestly, I'm a little tired. This just feels a little heady. <laughs> Right now, maybe I'm in some real physical pain. You know, with everything going on in the world, I'm, I'm kind of anxious, and I, I just, I'm not seeing how this all connects. I just can't seem to say no to sin. I mean, why spend, you know, I don't get to preach very often, so why spend all this time talking about this doctrine? Isn't doctrine stuffy and, and inapplicable? Well, I, I hope that some of the answer to that has already become a bit clear. But union with Christ matters, in short, because it is an anchor for us. Through the storms we face outside of us and inside of us, union with Christ can be that anchor that we can cast, that God can use to stabilize our souls. You know, I said at the beginning of the sermon, those four people we started with, four very different struggles, and yet I believe it would, this doctrine has the potential to transform the way that they wrestle through these things. 
And so for the rest of our time, I just want to give you four reasons why union with Christ matters. The point here is not, again, to go into crazy detail. Uh, maybe you feel like I'm, I'm going to. Um, but, but my point here is just to show us how valuable this doctrine is and help us to start to appreciate how far-reaching its implications are for our lives. So first of all, union with Christ, what does it do? It anchors us in four ways. It anchors our status, first of all. Remember Sheila, that was the first person I started talking about. Struggles with guilt. Struggles with understanding how she stands before God. But now I want to go back to chapter 1, verse 30. This is that verse that we, we looked at a couple moments ago, but we're going to look at the rest of it now. Because of him, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus... And notice what happens next. Jesus, the ones who are in Christ Jesus, he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Think about how that's said. It doesn't just say that when we trusted Christ, we got righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not what it says. It says that we got Christ, and Christ became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. There's a difference there. Now, when he's talking about wisdom, in this context in chapter 1, maybe you, you remember the, the phrases about the boasting and the cross and the, the wisdom of the world. You could go back and check out the context, but just for sake of time, essentially when he says wisdom, he's referring to the wisdom of the cross here. He's not talking about kind of a general wisdom and how to live our life, although that, that would maybe come in play a little bit. He's really talking about the fact that God's wisdom is way better than the world's wisdom, and that wisdom is seen ultimately in the cross of Jesus. So when he says wisdom here, it's almost like a shorthand for the gospel. But then he talks about these other three benefits. He says, in Christ we receive righteousness. It's a right standing before God, something I could never hope to earn on my own. He says we get sanctification. Sanctification we often think of in terms of gradually becoming more like Jesus, and certainly that's part of it. But sanctification is just a setting apart to God. We were once not holy. We are made positionally holy. We are sanctified in this way. And then we are redeemed, bought back from sin, something we can never do ourselves. These are soul-stabilizing realities. Wisdom of the gospel, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Man, we love to sing about these things. But don't, but don't miss the beginning of the verse. Outside of union with Christ, these benefits are not given to us. You know, it's interesting, in, in studying this doctrine, i found that theologians will often say that union with Christ is perhaps the most foundational aspect of our salvation. It's a pretty strong statement, but verses like this really start to support that. Uh, Dane Ortland, uh, in his book Deeper, so we went through Gentle and Lowly here in, in Sunday school a, a long time ago, um, and uh, I, he, same, same author, he wrote this book called Deeper that was excellent. I highly recommend it. He has an entire chapter on union with Christ, and I would definitely recommend it. He says this. He says that union with Christ is the umbrella doctrine within which every benefit of salvation is subsumed. So all these other things we like to think about, adoption and redemption and uh, election, and all, all these things, in general, these salvific benefits, if I can put it that way, are under the umbrella of... Union with Christ. 
When we are united to Christ, we get all these benefits. And then he, he says, John Calvin begins his discussion of salvation in the Institutes by saying, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless. Wow. You see, as Christians, we can be confident that we have a right standing before God 100%, but that's because we are united to his son. Jesus paid the price of sin, and now he boldly stands in the Father's presence. And since I am in Jesus, I can be confident that my sin has been paid for because Jesus did pay it all. And I can boldly stand in the Father's presence. So do you find yourself wrestling with your salvation, wondering about your status before God? Perhaps you wrestle with guilt, something in the distant past, maybe something from this past week. Regardless of what it is, you need to remember your union with Jesus if you have trusted him as your savior. If you're united to Christ and his righteousness becomes yours, I mean, to say it as Paul did, Jesus becomes or has become your righteousness. As he talks about in Romans 8, who is to condemn in that case? Because Jesus is the one who died. So I'm not condemned if I'm in him because my death has already happened. And so if you are in him, there is no place that is more secure than that. So we love to sing around here, Jesus is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace, all these things. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. Why? For my life is wholly bound to his. That's a statement of union with Christ. So our union with Christ then anchors our status. The second thing that union with Christ does is it anchors our lifestyle. Now generally what this means is that union with Christ should permeate everything we do. That everything I say the decisions I make, the conversations I have, should come through a filter of the fact that I am in Jesus Christ. But Paul gives us a specific example of this in chapter 6. And it's honestly a pretty graphic one. In chapter 6, Paul is speaking against sexual immorality in the church. And he says this. We looked at the first part of this verse earlier. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. So remember, I, I am that joined that my body is not my own. It's part of Christ's body in a very real sense. Maybe not physically, right? Jesus' physical body isn't right here, but this union is no less real. But then what does he say? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ? Because after all, my body is a member of Christ. And shall I make them members of a prostitute? When we sin with our bodies, we are sinning with a body that is not our own. My union with Jesus means that if I engage in sin, it is almost as if I'm dragging his body along with me. You say, that sounds really drastic. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? My union with Christ makes using my body for sin utterly unthinkable. We should all ask ourselves how we tend to sin with our bodies. 
What do we look at? What do we allow the desires of our hearts to dwell on? Paul's going to go on in the next verses in chapter 6 to remind us, you were bought with a price, and so the result of that is that you should glorify God with your body. So union with Christ anchors our lifestyle. <clears throat> Reason number three that union with Christ matters is it anchors our unity. Union with Christ anchors our unity. <clears throat> the Corinthian church was very disunified. There's your understatement of the day. <laughs> Maybe you remember the text that talks about, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. You've got all these factions that are supporting different leaders. That's the Corinthian church. That's the church that Paul is writing to. In fact, that is one of the primary reasons why Paul is writing to this church, is to correct the, the rampant disunity that's among them. So how then does union with Christ affect disunity and anchor the unity of the church? It's very simple. If I am united to Christ and you're united to Christ, then we're united to each other. We are part of the same body. And the body doesn't function right when it's fighting against each other. We've already seen that every Christian is a member of Christ's body, so let's take a look at how that affects us. So, so that's what it is in theory, but what does it look like practically? Well, in chapter 12, this is, a, 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 this is the section where it's talking about you know, the eye and the hand and, and all this kind of thing. Paul says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division. So there's that unity idea. So a good body means that everything is working together. They're all on the same page. If my feet are out of sync, it's not going to allow me to walk very well, right? That there be no division in the body. That's the goal. But instead, the goal is that the members have the same care for one another. And then he goes on to describe what that care looks like. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Wow. If one member suffers, all suffer together. Again, we, we, we think of these ideas a lot, but I think they just go to the next level when we think about them in terms of our union with Christ. Because now it's not merely that if you tell me that you're struggling with something or you have some burden on your heart, you're suffering. It's not merely that I have sympathy and that I, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, that, that is true, but I'm suffering as well because we're part of the same body. There are people in this room who are suffering physically, emotionally, maybe through wayward children or financial pressure or grieving of lost loved ones. We suffer we don't suffer alone. When one member suffers, we all suffer together. Union with Christ shows me that we are part of the same body, so we suffer together. In Romans, we are called to weep with those who weep. Similar concept here. Our care for one another is rooted in the fact that we're part of the same body. We are united together. We are fellow members. But the flip side is also true, right? It says if one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
When other people are honored, do you find yourself happy with them? Or do you find yourself getting a little jealous that it wasn't you? We all should rejoice when people are happy, when, when they are lifted up. We are one because we are one in Christ. So let me ask you, do you view the church this way? Or is church just something that you do on Sundays? You know, when I come, I sit, I enjoy the music, I try to take away from the sermon, and I go home, that starts to sound like this is like just me and Jesus, and I forget that there's also all these other people that are also united to Jesus. But that's what Paul says our unity is. If we all suffer, we are all one body together. I wonder how different our church would look if we came on a Sunday morning or really any time we're together with the mindset that we were about to interact with our family, our fellow members in Christ. And to be clear, I thank God that that happens. That does happen, okay? I'm not saying we don't do that at all. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for you all who are fellow members along with me, who rejoice with me and pray with me and suffer with me, and I seek to do the same for you. But I think it's fair for us all to ask ourselves the question, how can I better love and serve my fellow members in Jesus? Maybe that's in a formal way, programmatic way, or maybe it's just in being a little more intentional about asking someone how they're really doing, about asking them how they can pray for them and then doing it right there as I had a brother do with me this morning. Union with Christ anchors our unity. And then lastly, union with Christ anchors our hope. I was talking to Michael Eldridge about this sermon a few weeks ago and was mentioning that I'm probably going to end at hope. And he's like, oh, of course, you always like to go to hope. And he, he was just joking. I don't think he's saying I shouldn't. Um, but man, I love talking about hope. So, so this, is, this is awesome. Do you have hope today? There's a lot going on in the world. And we all are going to put our hope somewhere. So where are you putting it? What are you resting in today? Let me be a little more specific. What is your hope in the face of death? Because for some of us, that may seem really far away. But as we just sang, this life is but a vapor. We're almost home. You know, this is what I mentioned, if you remember Charles from the beginning of the sermon. I don't expect you to remember the names of my figments of imagination. But... Uh, Charles was wrestling with the fact that he had been so strong for so long and now his, his body's getting fragile and he's, he's afraid of death. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the hope of resurrection. And it's interesting, we often think of this on Easter because Jesus rose from the dead. And while he does talk about Jesus' resurrection in chapter 15, he talks about Jesus' resurrection because he's talking about something else. Paul brings up Jesus' resurrection in chapter 15 because he's talking about the resurrection of Christians. Some in Corinth had been denying the fact that Christians would physically rise again. And so Paul's talking about Christ rising from the dead as part of that conversation. You see, we often think of a believer passing away, entering God's presence in heaven, and that's kind of the end of the story. But in the New Testament, and especially in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that Yes, when Christians pass away, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Praise God for that. 
Um, I forget which passage that's from, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's focus is on resurrection. Humans were not created to be bodiless forever. To be human in part means to have a physical form. Paul talks about if in Christ we have hope in this life only, that's no, uh, that's no hope. A, bodily, a bodyless existence, like not having a body forever, that doesn't make Paul excited at all. <laughs> you see, one day Jesus will bodily return and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But you can't enjoy a physical new earth if your physical body is still lying in the ground. Now you might be starting to think, scientifically, how does that work? Read 1 Corinthians 15, study it for a couple weeks, and then I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. I don't totally get it either. But, but there's a lot of really helpful insights that, that Paul is heading off there. But Paul, point being, Paul is discussing the bodily resurrection of Christians in this chapter. So you say, okay, wait, how did we get here again? <laughs> union with Christ. What does this have to do with union with Christ? It has everything to do with union with Christ. One of the most important verses about union with Christ in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It's a strong statement. Um, I hadn't noticed this in In Can It Be, but did you hear how uh, it said, when we were saying In Can It Be, and bled for Adam's helpless race? Hmm. Keep that in mind. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That resurrection is not referring to Jesus. That's referring to all of us who will be resurrected. For as, oh, check this out, in Adam, there's that terminology, those two, remember those two words, in Christ, in Adam, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Note that union language. You are either in Adam or in Christ. The point could be summarized by saying who you're united to determines your destiny. Adam sinned. And what was the result of that? What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. And so Adam died. And every human since then is born into this world united to in Adam. He is their representative, as it were. And we don't have a choice about that. But on the flip side, those who are in Christ shall all be made alive. That's hope. If you remember a little while ago, I said you could almost think of this in some ways as a kidney transplant, right? Well, let's take that a couple steps farther. When you have a transplant of an organ like that, what would happen to the kidney if it stayed in a dead body? It would die, right? Because its fate is tied to the body that it's in. But if the kidney is taken out of the dead body and united to a living body, what happens to the kidney? It lives. Main problem with that illustration is that Jesus does not need a kidney transplant. But it shows us that the destiny of that organ depends on what body it's united to. Your ultimate destiny, eternal destiny, you can't get more important than that. It ultimately depends on who you're united to. And because Jesus lives, that's where Jesus' resurrection enters the equation. Because Jesus lives, if you're united to him, you will live as well. 
I mean, think about it this way. If Jesus rose, but there was no way to be united to him, we're still hopeless because we're still in the dead body. We're still in Adam. But Jesus did rise, praise God, and Christians can be united to him. Christians are in Jesus. So his resurrection then, if we are this tightly bound to him, then it would be fair to say that his resurrection is a beacon that points to their future resurrection. To use Paul's terminology from, the, from verse 20, which we didn't look at, he says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. It's the promise that here's something, there's something more coming. There's more harvest still. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our own resurrection. So union with Christ anchors our hope because it assures us that Jesus' resurrection is, in fact, our resurrection. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. It, and trust me, this has not been an exhaustive study of union with Christ. In many ways, we are just scratching the surface. But I hope that this brief survey has helped you to understand and appreciate your union with Christ in a fresher way. Doctrine is not something, and especially this doctrine, is not something that is supposed to be cold and academic and stuffy, reserved for academic papers. But union with Christ, when we understand it, when we apply it to our lives, when we really grasp it, it is invigorating, stabilizing, and utterly transformative. Praise God that we are in Christ. Lord. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he rose from the dead, that he has given us hope. And this is not a hope for this life only, but for all of eternity, because Jesus rose. So we do not have to fear the day when death arrives, the time at last when we shall be like Christ. Thank you that grace has spoken and that life has broken into us in Jesus. Amen.